Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. A few weeks ago, I was having lunch with a former high-ranking U.S. diplomat whose work focused on Russia and Europe. I asked him where he thought Putin might target next to sow instability, and without missing a beat, he said, Bosnia. So I did a little digging myself, and indeed there have been a number of think tank and press reports about Russian meddling in Bosnia. It's an extremely undercovered global story, but one that has the potential to cause unrest not only in the Balkans, but across Europe. On the line with me to discuss this situation is Michael Carpenter. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Eastern Europe, and the Balkans, and is now Senior Director for Diplomacy and Global Engagement at the Penn Biden Center. Michael explains some of the motivations driving Vladimir Putin here. Above all, he describes how fomenting unrest in Bosnia is Putin's best insurance policy against perceived threats by the West. Bosnia, as Michael puts it, is the soft underbelly of Europe that is ripe for exploitation. Before we dive into this episode, though, I thought it would be helpful to give a quick history lesson here, and we get into this in more detail in the episode. But in brief, the country that I refer to shorthand as Bosnia, its name is actually Bosnia-Herzegovina. It was created by the 1995 Dayton Peace Accords, which ended the civil war in the former Yugoslavia. The country of Bosnia-Herzegovina is composed of two main entities. The first entity, rather confusingly, is called the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is mainly Bosniak and Croat. The other is called the Republika Srpska, which is majority Serb. And together, again, these two entities form the country that I refer to as Bosnia that's formerly known as Bosnia and Herzegovina. And again, we get into more detail about this unique and, and somewhat bizarre political arrangement in the episode, but I thought just that background would be helpful for you to have if you didn't already have it as we kick off this conversation. As always, I want to encourage you to get in touch with me with your suggestions of topics I should cover or people I should interview. You can hit me up at Mark L. Goldberg on Twitter, or better yet, send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. If you have anything else on your mind, questions that you think I might be able to answer, please send them my way. And again, thank you all who are leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. If you do leave a review, let me know, and I will mail you one of our brand new Global Dispatches podcast stickers. I still have a few left, so leave a review, and I will put it in the mail for you. All right, now here is my conversation with Michael Carpenter of the Penn Biden Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I think that we should be alarmed because Russian influence in Republika Srpska has been mounting now for several years. And so the military buildup is just sort of the, the outward manifestation of that. But the political influence is what's really um, something that people should be concerned about. So what are some manifestations of those political influences? Well, we've seen that the current president of the Republika Srpska entity within uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Milorad Dodik, is, is heavily under the influence of Moscow. Uh, he will deny that. He will say that he has friendly relations with Moscow. But we've seen that over the course of really the last sort of three, four, five years, his relationship with Belgrade has been weakened, although it's still relatively strong. Uh, and his relationship with Moscow has been vastly strengthened. And he really depends uh, on Moscow and on Russia as a source of patronage, of assistance, uh, but also uh, on the military side, we've seen Russia not only training the Republika Srpska police, which is the police force in the entity of Republika Srpska, not in the larger country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, and then now these reports of Russian training for mercenaries that would sort of act as a Praetorian guard to Dodik and to his regime in Banja Luka. And, you know, that's dangerous because... Uh, ethnic tensions are lurking right below the surface, and uh, Dodik has been increasingly emboldened in putting forward secessionist uh, claims and using secessionist rhetoric to galvanize his political base. And in fact, he said that 2018, he said in the past at least, that 2018 is the year that he might call a referendum on the secession of Republika Srpska from the rest of Bosnia. Obviously, that is um, a very troubling development if it happens, because it is a tinderbox there still, and it could result in in conflicts that could ignite beyond Bosnia into the wider region. And and that's like the the ultimate card that Dodic could play, presumably at the behest of, of Putin, is calling for this referendum, which would be terribly destabilizing throughout the, the region. And now, you know, there are all these reports of Dojic sort of arming up and, and, and having his police force and all these paramilitaries receive arms and perhaps some training from, from Russia that they would be sort of armed and able to sort of perhaps enforce this independence. So, um, you know, a couple things on this. I, I don't think that uh, Dodik will make any moves without Moscow's acquiescence. They are his primary backers. And from the Kremlin's perspective, uh, they are satisfied with the status quo. They don't want Bosnia and Herzegovina to enter either uh, the EU or, God forbid, from their perspective, NATO. And so they like the status quo because essentially Republika Srpska has a veto uh, over the country's geopolitical direction. Ostensibly, uh, Sarajevo is still pursuing EU and NATO membership, but in reality, uh, Euro-Atlantic aspirations have been thwarted. And so my personal belief is that Putin will not allow Dodik to pursue a secession referendum for now. However, if Russia feels that its back is up against the wall, that European sanctions, for example, are being increased, perhaps in a totally different context of Ukraine, 
uh, or something else, he has Bosnia and Herzegovina always readily available as a sort of a, the soft underbelly of Europe where he can just press a button and, and really destabilize the situation in the wider region. And that's what's worrisome. The military buildup, you know, I don't see it so much as um, designed to uh, enforce separation of Bosnia, although that's certainly a possibility, but it's more to protect the regime against uh, internal opponents of, of Dodik's. And so it's sort of, again, as I said, it's creating a Praetorian Guard that will protect Dodik from potential challengers within Serbia. One of those challengers, or at least one of his, challengers is the wrong word, but one of his political rivals is uh, Mladen Ivanic, who is a member of the Bosnian tri-presidency, and he is therefore based in Sarajevo, uh, who's, who's very moderate and pragmatic and reasonable, and I think supports um, Bosnia's Euro-Atlantic trajectory. He sees the future of Bosnia as part of Europe and therefore is uh, at odds with Dodik. And Dodik wants to eliminate those sorts of political mm. rivals. Okay, so, so, he, so, so the person you just mentioned is also uh, a, a from Republika Srpska, but is a member of the, of the, the presidency. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the sort of bizarre political makeup of Bosnia-Herzegovina in, in, in a second. But I just wanted to emphasize uh, one point you made, which I think is, is important and, and something um, worth exploring. So basically, you're saying that igniting tension in Republika Srpska and Bosnia more broadly is pretty easy for Putin to do if he wanted to do it. And this is sort of his ultimate trump card to get back at Europe if if they act too aggressively towards him as, as he might perceive it. Yeah, I mean, this is a very vulnerable spot in Europe. Uh, and Europe is anyway uh, more and more vulnerable because of the rise of nationalist populist movements across the continent. But, I mean, nationalist populism has a strong home in the yeah. Western Balkans, and particularly in Bosnia. And so if you want to exploit that, this is the place where you can do it and have an influence on the rest of Europe. This is, you know, Bosnia sits in the heart of Europe. Any refugee flows, God forbid, should there be a renewed conflict, would impact Europe. Uh, so that's why it's so important for U.S. and especially European policymakers to pay more attention to Bosnia, because frankly, over the course of the last decade or so, uh, the eyes have been taken off of what's happening in Bosnia. And people have sort of assumed that, you know, the situation has stabilized, the country is on this sort of linear trajectory that will eventually result in Euro-Atlantic integration. That's a very naive belief, because uh, although there has been stability over the last decade, that stability sort of belies uh, a lot of churn and a lot of uh, both political animosities, but also, as I said, latent ethnic tensions that are left over from the 90s. And that's dangerous. So so let's go uh, go back a, a little bit. I was hoping maybe you can walk me through a, a little bit of, of a history lesson. So uh, the, you know, Entity we know of now as Bosnia and Herzegovina was, uh, you know, created in the wake of the 1995 Dato, uh, Dayton Peace uh, Accord, which ended the uh, civil war in the former Yugoslavia, uh, created two entities, Republika Srpska and the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is you know, different from the country we know as Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, what's the the relationship between, say, Republika Srpska and the the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina? Well, it is um, a little bit like the relationship between 
Catalonia and Spain or between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. So perfectly um, harmonious then. Only worse. (laughs) So, you know, Bosnia is one of the most convoluted uh, political systems on the planet. As you mentioned there, it's the two basic units are the Federation and Republika Srpska. Republika Srpska is the primarily ethnic Serb entity, which is uh, controlled, as I said, by its local president, Milorad Dodik. And the Federation uh, encompasses both the Bosniak Muslim as well as the Croatian populated parts of Bosnia, although the whole country is a, has been historically a patchwork. And so it, it was never easy to divide uh, the region along ethnic lines. But Dayton, essentially, the Dayton Peace Accord did do that, and it created those two entities. Then there's also 10 cantons, and it, it gets much more complicated than that. But we don't need to go into that. I think what's important is that Republika Srpska is p- trying to pull apart from the rest of the country. And that also has follow-on repercussions because the head of the um, of the ethnic Croatian entity, or the representative of ethnic Croatians in Bosnia, is uh, a man named Dragan Čović. He's a member of the Tri Presidency. Again, the presidency has three representatives: one from each predominant ethnic group, Muslims or Bosniaks as they're called, uh, Croats and Serbs. And Čović also wants to carve out uh, a third entity, what's called the third entity, for the Croat population of Bosnia. So if Republika Srpska ever separated from the rest of Bosnia, it would create an internal dynamic likely, most likely, within the Federation that would also lead to um, the division of, potentially at least, the Muslim and Croat parts of, of the country. So it really is a tinderbox. It really is something that's being held together by very thin glue, uh, and it's very brittle as a sort of a, a political institution. Well, well, let me ask then, if it is so br- brittle as a political institution, and if Dayton, you know, it turns out was really, you know, a good way to end a war, but not a good way to build a, a country in its wake, why not let uh, Republika Srpska uh, secede and form its own autonomous state and then have the, the uh, Croatian entity form its own sort of mini state a- as well? What's the argument against that? Well, um, it you know it is very dangerous to allow countries in this day and age to um, establish to to break apart based on ethno national arguments. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina has always been a very complex patchwork of ethnicities, and having Republika Srpska separate from the rest of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina would then imperil those, for example, Muslim Bosniaks who live in Republika Srpska and who currently feel that they have this overarching uh, government of Bosnia that protects their minority rights, and by the way, which are guaranteed also by uh, the Dayton Peace Accords, um, and they would essentially be left to fend for themselves. Those populations would be put at risk uh, in a independent Republika Srpska, it would potentially have follow-on effects in the wider Western Balkans region. You know, there's a lot of countries that have uh, mixed ethnicities, and this would set a terrible precedent for them. And as I said, it would set also a terrible precedent for the the rump uh, uh, part of Bosnia, should this ever come to pass, the Federation, which would, uh, which would also be very, very um, uh, conflict-prone. And so, it's just a bad idea. There's the, the city of Brčko, 
which is in um, the northern and um, and eastern part of the country, which uh, again is is part of Republika Srpska but has its own sort of status. Um, that would be uh, that would uneasily sit within uh, Republika Srpska, and so there's just it's just very messy. There's no easy way to do this. Is the bottom line. Well, I'm wondering. Um... What are some potential like worst case scenarios? Um, you know, could I mean it seems plausible, um, you know, not out of the realm of possibility that um this becomes like the next Ukraine, uh, in the sense that you have, you know, heavily Russian interference, you have out you know, armed conflict, destabilization. Well, I think yeah. that's actually not quite the right analogy. I think you know, the the worst case scenario, and I don't want to sound too alarmist here, but you know, it is worth you know raising this issue because it's a very, very serious one with potentially huge ramifications. But the the scenario for Bosnia is really Bosnia. I mean the the most likely scenario is a return to the Bosnian War of the nineteen nineties. And and that would really be catastrophic for the country, for the people who live there and for um for Europe. Um Russia, the role that Russia plays, or the Kremlin, is potentially to ignite and exacerbate ethnic tensions there, just as they do, by the way, in the United States, and they do in France, and they do in other countries, um, with online propaganda, with um, uh, well-funded influence operations, and so on and so forth. Uh, but so Russia is more akin to the great power interfering in Bosnian politics and igniting the spark but it doesn't need to play an active role with its own military the way it is currently in Ukraine. I mean, currently in Ukraine, you've got about two to 3,000 regular Russian troops that are have complete command and control over the proxy forces there and are prosecuting a, a hot war uh, against Ukraine, against the state of Ukraine. In Bosnia, you wouldn't necessarily have a deployment of Russian troops. You would have Russia, again, instigating a conflict uh, sort of covertly from behind the scenes, and then watching it uh, as the fa- as the flames are are fanned, uh, just simply by local tensions and local animosities. Um, to what extent? But that doesn't, you know, again, that yeah. doesn't mean this is going to pass. I want your your listeners to understand. I, you know, I don't. It sounds very alarmist, and we should take it seriously. But there is this. By no means, this scenario will necessarily play out in this way. I'm wondering to what extent um, Russians' decision-making here, Russia's decision-making here is guided in part by what happened last year when uh, Montenegro was uh, was admitted to, to NATO. What was it, last April or so? Um, which, June. Okay, last, last June, Montenegro, another uh, part of the former Yugoslavia, joined NATO last year, which um, seemed to seriously... Um, uh, seriously upset you know, Putin. Putin personally, it, it seemed he took it. Well, Russia has always uh, wanted to defend what it considers its sphere of privileged interests. To use uh, former president, current prime minister Dmitry Medvedev's phrase, and what's important for people to understand is the sphere of privileged interests for the Kremlin doesn't just mean the countries on Russia's periphery. It means the countries where Russian uh, oligarchs and cronies of Putin's have business interests. It's wherever their fingers are in the rice bowl, so to speak. And Montenegro was a place where a lot of Russians had invested um, in the 90s after the dissolution of Yugoslavia uh, into the 2000s. And when Montenegro declared independence in 2006, 
and the political leadership of the country decided to pursue European and NATO integration, um, that was opposed by the Kremlin. But it was only when they started to get serious about it and actually undertake reforms that threatened Russia's interests, because again, Russia's interests are intimately tied up with organized crime and corruption and these sorts of activities, then the Kremlin really started to push back. And yes, uh, in October of 2016, uh, the Russian military intelligence service, the GRU, planned um, a coup d'etat against the sitting prime minister. It was supposed to happen on election day. Um, They recruited mercenaries from within the region, from Kosovo, from Serbia, and from Montenegro itself, to carry it out. And luckily, uh, the one of the uh, hired mercenaries tipped off the authorities and became a cooperating government witness. And so the authorities were able to foil the plot in advance, and it never was carried out. But um, talk about a brazen intervention in a, in a sovereign country. Uh, I mean, Russia really had a coup d'etat all lined up to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that just sort of goes to show the extent to which um, Russia is so opposed to, obviously, you know, NATO expansion and, you know, countries in its periphery looking closer towards the, the EU and and um, integration. I, I guess I'm wondering, like, how close, like, where is Bosnia and Herzegovina in, in talks to, uh, in particular with, like, with uh, European integration with the EU? Like, are, are they in sort of the early steps? Are they in the process? So they're in the process uh, with both uh, NATO and the EU. But as I said, they're effectively hamstrung from any uh, substantive advancement uh, on either track, on either EU or, or the NATO track. And that's because uh, Republika Srpska, the entity, uh, basically has a de facto veto over their progress. So, for example, in NATO, uh, in 2014, there were there was something called the Tallinn conditions based on a meeting that was held in the Estonian capital of Tallinn that were imposed on Bosnia, whereby NATO decided that if the Bosnia needed to register all of its defense properties across the entire country, so that the Ministry of Defense would be accountable and would use them in line with uh, NATO accession goals. And essentially, Republika Srpska has refused to register properties that fall on its territory. And so the Tallinn conditions have de facto given Banja Luka and Dodik uh, a, a veto over uh, Bosnia's membership action plan, which is what it needs to be able to move forward with its NATO uh, a session and a, a similar process, not quite as explicit and institutionalized, but a similar process is underway with uh, its EU uh, integration, whereby if Republika Srpska f- fails to implement the conditions for further progress towards the EU, the country is just simply going to stagnate under the status quo, and that's what's happening, unfortunately. Um. Finally, uh, it's my understanding that there are to be elections in October. Um, what, what should we be looking out for in those elections? Like how, how are you approaching the elections? Like what, what are you looking forward to? Like, like, what are you looking to? What, um, how are you approaching? Like, how are you understanding them? Well, the elections will, uh, will be based in large measure on patronage and clientelism, which is what sort of dominates, uh, Bosnia's politics. But what I am most worried about, I mean, and that's existed for decades, uh, what I'm most worried about is not the patronage politics, but the use of xenophobic rhetoric to 
to mobilize a nationalist base, particularly in Republika Srpska, but also, frankly, uh, in the Federation. Uh, we didn't talk about the influence of Middle Eastern countries like Iran, uh, Turkey, but there's there's a lot of foreign powers that are meddling in Bosnian politics. And it's a pretty toxic brew. And if you have politicians appealing uh, on narrowly xenophobic or nationalistic lines to appeal to a certain segment of the population that is that is uh, wanting that type of rhetoric or susceptible to it, it just makes for a very dangerous situation. Now, of course, Bosnia has had lots of elections in the last decade, and um, and so these are just another one. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you know again the country is about to implode. But it does mean that we need to watch carefully. And I think the number one sort of takeaway for for your listeners is that you know we've really done ourselves a disservice in Brussels and Washington by taking our eyes off of Bosnia. And the country needs a lot more Western attention. It needs a lot more support. It also needs more incentives, more structured incentives to to make reforms that will take away some of these vulnerabilities that I just mentioned. Um, well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. This is this is very helpful. Obviously, it's a it's a complex situation, but, um, you know, one in which I think you're right, we, we ought to be paying a bit more attention to. Happy to be with you. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much to Michael. That was very helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's again, one of those situations that I think is a sort of pre-crisis situation. It's something that could be ignited seemingly at any moment and boil to the surface very, very quickly. So I was glad to uh, give you uh, the context for understanding this news if and when it comes. Uh, again, feel free to reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. I really do mean that I do this show for you. So when you reach out to me with your questions or your comments, I, I really do value that interaction. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.